Psalm 104. It's fairly long, so we won't be able to dilly-dally around verse by verse like we normally do. Well, we could. We may. How long you got? Psalm 104. Follow along as I read. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who covereth Thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of His chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds His chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angel spirits, his ministers, a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hastened away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them, that is, these streams, shall the fowls of the heavens have their habitation that sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, an herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nest, as for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and rocks for the conies, or the badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun knoweth its going down. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey, and seek their meat from God. The sun riseth, they gather themselves together, and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work, and to his labor, until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These all wait upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. That which thou givest them they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh on the earth, and it trembleth. He toucheth the hills, and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. 
Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. You'll notice that our psalm tonight begins much like the one previous to it in Psalm 103 with the idea of blessing the Lord, O my soul. Uh, As I said last week, it is sort of like talking to ourselves. Sometimes we need a good talking to. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why are you depressed, soul? Uh, It's like you're uh, giving yourself an admonition, a pep talk. And so it is here that the inward inward man is being addressed and being stirred up to bless and praise the Lord. Now last week, if you think back in Psalm 103, verse 2, the thing that the inner man was being stored up to do was to remember especially the benefits of God, the gifts, the goodnesses. Uh, Tom is just talking about the things you receive, the providences. Well, it's that kind of thing that is in view in Psalm 103. Here in Psalm 104, and you undoubtedly noticed it as we were reading it, here we are stirred up to think about God's works, and particularly His work of creation. You'll notice that this time it is the fact that God has fashioned and formed this earth on which we live and has placed us in a place where our needs can be provided for. Paul has told us in Romans 1 verse 20 that the invisible things of God are clearly seen in the created world. Now think about that. The invisible things of God are seen. You don't normally see invisible things. Notice that we're not seeing these things directly, but we are looking at creation and we are seeing God's fingerprints all over it. And so we are called upon to meditate upon His work of creation. So we're going to do a little of that tonight. I'm going to break this up into about four sections just sort of help us organize our thoughts. And first of all, in verses 1 through 10, I want you to see the hand of God what I call crafting His creation. There's a sense in which the universe was spoken into existence ex nihilo. What does ex nihilo mean? Out of nothing. In other words, there was not pre-existing stuff out there. Matter was not eternal. But God spoke stuff into existence. But you'll notice that from the account in Genesis and also from our text here tonight, that the stuff that was created originally was not yet organized as God would have it. It's like God took the stuff and began to shape it, began to mold it into what He would have it to be. He fashioned it with His own hands, now hands being used in an anthropomorphically way. Um, What I see in these first few verses is the The idea of our God, well, it's something our Lord told the woman at the well. God is spirit. First of all, just think about the fact that a God who is not material, that is not substance, but is spirit, has, by his word, ordained that there be substance and material. In other words, God, by creation, is creating a realm of things that is quite unlike himself. And when we think of God, notice the strange language here. I'm I'm just struck with this of how God is sort of uh, describing himself. First of all, he puts on, verse 2, he puts on light. 
as a garment. Now, most of us don't think about wearing light. We get up, get ready to go to church. I'm going to put on some light. Um, there's very good reasons for that. Light uh, probably wouldn't work too well for our clothing. But notice that God has robed himself, has clothed himself in light. And that light, of course, we speak of as his glory. And notice the insubstantial nature. I mean, again, we you'll see several of these being listed here that fit God but don't fit us. Uh, God would be clothed in light. We wouldn't. Notice as well, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He places his beams, the beams of his chamber. That would be like the foundation stones of your house. He places those beams in the waters. You see that? Now, most of the time, we don't put our foundation stones in the water because the water won't hold it up. We put the foundation stones on something solid. But you see what I'm saying? There is this idea that God is describing His habitat, how different it is from us. Here's His chamber, His house, and He puts the foundation in the water. He goes on to say, He makes the clouds His chariot. I don't know if it's four-wheel drive chariot or whatever, but we have chariots, these horseless chariots that we drive around today, and uh, we would never think of making a cloud our chariot, would we? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Notice that we go on. He, um, he walks upon the wings of the wind. These are all describing the spiritual state of God, the spiritual side of God, of how He gets around. He makes His angels. And the word angel, anybody know what the word angel literally means? Angelos just means a servant, and it may be a physical servant. Uh, for instance, uh, John the Baptist sent his angels to Jesus to ask, Are you the Messiah? Should we wait for another? Clearly, the angel in that case were men, physical angels. However, a lot of times, as we well know, the word angelos in Greek refers to spiritual beings, and that's how it's being used here. That he makes his ministers, his servants, spirits. His ministers a flaming fire, like the flame of a fire. Notice again the insubstantial nature. God is using his ministers to perform his bidding, but his ministers are not substance. And I, I hope I'm getting this across, that God himself immaterial, a being of pure spirit, is forming a universe of substance. And notice his relationship, clothing himself with light, putting his foundation in the waters, riding on a cloud, walking on the wind, his ministers, his servants themselves are not substantial. They are not substance. They are spirits. Angels are rational beings, but spiritual beings. They don't have bodies. Now, sometimes they appear in bodily form for the purpose of their mission, but they don't stay that way. That's not their natural form. And so his ministers are like the flame of a fire. I mean, you know, you run your finger through the flame of a candle, and is there anything there? You, you get the picture of how this is being described in so so many different ways. But now, this spirit being, this infinite spirit who is God, 
has in verse 5 laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. He has laid the foundations of the world. Do you remember how often that figure of speech pops up? He's chosen us in Christ from the foundation of the world. His works are known from the foundation of the world. What do you mean by that? When you do the foundation of something, that's the first. That's where you, I don't know much about building, but I know you don't start on the roof, you start on the foundation. And so when God lays the foundation of this earth, this planet, and that doesn't necessarily mean there's foundation stones, the earth is resting on a big turtle or something like that, as the ancients used to think. But when he first formed it, uh, this is the beginning of his interfacing with man and preparing a place for man to dwell. Notice this earth is to be a place that is not to be removed. I, we read of new heavens and new earth, but we're not to think of new there in the sense of replacing this earth as it is refurbishing this earth. It is made new. It's the same earth. It appears that this will be where we dwell even in eternity with God because the heavenly city comes down from heaven to the earth in Revelation. And so it is a refurbished earth. It is a cleansed earth. It's new in that sense, but it's not new in the sense it's not like we're going to leave earth and go to Venus. This is the place that God has prepared for man's habitation. You'll notice then that he covers the earth with water like a garment. And this goes back to the first chapter of Genesis where what was upon the face of the earth, there was water. And how did that resolve itself? God divided the water from the land. Y'all do remember that part, right? Yes, to divide the water. Well, notice the same thing is being said here, that the waters are completely covering the earth as it is their garment. And now at God's rebuke in verse 7, these waters flee away, they divide, they hasten away. And notice in verse 8, they begin to divide. Some go by the mountains, they go down into the valleys. Uh, the idea is of rivers that are now flowing down from the mountains. Notice in verse 9 that God sets a bound, a boundary, that they do not pass over. In other words, what we would call the coastline, that these things are now established in order to provide a fitting place for man. And uh, notice the springs in verse 10, uh, in the hills and running down into the valley. So in other words, the waters that once covered the entire earth are now divided. We have dry land and sea, and we have a dispersion of the waters. Now the water comes out of springs, comes down the mountainsides, the rivers, and so forth. Just notice the progressive work of God, that it's like you would go out and say, I want a garden. And the first thing you have to do is to prepare a place for the garden. Correct? You gotta dig up some stuff. You gotta get the weeds out. You gotta prepare the soil. You may need to, uh, put, put it into rows. You've gotta do something to keep the, the bunnies out or whatever. The critters out. Uh, the idea is in the same way that God is fashioning the earth for man, his creature. Uh, perhaps a better illustration would be like a terrarium. You know, sometimes you get kids and they want a terrarium. They put lizards in there and so forth. 
and they put some sticks in there for the lizard to climb around on, put a little water in there for the lizard to drink, and so forth. And what you're doing is that you're fashioning an environment, a place where the lizard can live. Or let's take a water metaphor, your aquarium. you got this big thing filled with water. You put some fish in there, but you just don't dump some fish in there. You put some little things for the swish to swim around in, some little weeds, and you got to have oxygen flowing through the water to oxygenate the water. Do you understand what I'm saying? You do a lot of preparatory work to provide an environment for the critter that you wish to house and so forth. Well, God is doing the same thing here, but he's doing it planet-wide. He is terraforming this planet. He is fashioning it into a place for man to live and man and his other creation. So that's the first thing we notice here, that God, by his work, is fashioning this planet to be a suitable place for man and for his other creatures to inhabit. Starting in verse 11 through verse 24, we begin then to study what I would call God's ecosystem. And by ecosystem, I mean it is how it all works together. Uh, this place we live, planet Earth, and some of the astronauts, by the way, on some of the first moonshots were struck with the fact of, and they never really got over it, the psychological impression of seeing planet Earth hanging out there in the blackness of space. Because space, outer space, is about as inhospitable a place that you can possibly find. It's either far too cold or far too hot. There's no atmosphere. There's cosmic radiation. Everything non-conducive to life is out there in outer space. And then there hangs this blue marble in the blackness of space. And they were all, almost every one of them came back talking about the impression that made on them that they began to realize what a strange, special special place this planet really is. That here is a place on which life can exist. Here's a place on which man can exist. And you begin to realize this is unique. You look around, there's just no other place quite like this. Now, I know they're finding other planets and so forth left and right today, but it's very unique to find a planet formed as we have here. We'll say more about that in a minute. You'll notice here that he speaks then of this division of the waters doing something for his creatures. You'll notice in verse 11 that these streams now that are flowing down from the mountains are not just there flowing, but they are giving drink to the beast of the field. The beast of the field is what we would call wildlife, deer, antelope, so forth. In other words, the rivers flowing down from the hills are providing drink for the critters up there in the, the wilderness. The wild asses quench their thirst. They are drinking from it. Notice uh, he mentions the birds. We'll say more about them in a moment. But I like verse 13. He waters the hills from his chambers. His chambers are in heaven. And uh, some of you ladies, if you garden, uh, you go out with your water bucket, with the spigot, and you water your flowers, you water the plants. Here's the description of God watering the earth with rain or snow or whatever. He waters the hills from his chambers. And what does that do? Well, the earth is then satisfied and starts bringing forth fruit. 
Notice verse 14. Brings forth grass for the cattle, herb for the service of man. Okay, why do you, what do you do with herbs? What, what, give me an example of herbs that are. What, what? Basil. Yeah, actual herbs. What? What? I don't, you see, I'm absolutely ignorant when it comes to herbs. I've suddenly realized that when I was studying for this. Huh? Rosemary and thyme, that's parsley and sage, yeah. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> that's all I know. Uh, what do you do with herbs? You splice, spice up food. In other words, notice animals would not go out and gather herbs. The herbs really wouldn't be much use to them. Only man is going to gather the herbs up and use it to spice, make his other food taste good. At least I've never seen an animal out there gathering up herbs and saying, hey, I need a little pepper on this. <laughs> Somebody go get me some salt. <laughs> you know, sprinkle it on here. Uh, animals don't do that. The herbs are there for us. They're, they're the little extras, the thing that make, uh, things taste good. Um, notice wine, verse 15. Wine. Uh, Baptists don't like to talk about that, but uh, wine makes the heart makes glad the heart of man. Um, we can let you figure out whether it's uh, fermented or not, but <laughs> it seems to be uh, oil to make his face to shine. Now that's what everybody needs today is a shiny face. But in the ancient world, uh, before you went out in the sunshine, you put oil on your head. You anointed your head with oil, as we read in Psalm. 23, and it's for protection from the sun. Uh, they used oil from everything from fuel to uh, cook with, to use as medicine, but to anoint themselves. And then bread, which strengthens man's heart. So we have the, the wine to drink. We have the oil to rub on your face, make your face shiny. Some of us have shinier faces than others. And bread to give you strength. Notice, you know, what's being described here is that God has shaped his earth in such a way that it provides what is necessary for his creatures, everything from the the critters that drink the, the beast of the field, the deer in the forest that drink from the streams, to man, the herbs for him to season his food with, these things. I, when we were in Israel, our guide said that among Jews, it was commonly said that God had blessed Israel with seven blessings. See if I can name them all. The grape, the olive, the date, the fig, the almond, wheat, and barley. But those were the seven blessings, and he's, of course, talking agriculturally, that God had blessed the nation of Israel with. And notice we have a summary of those things right here. So these are the things that man needs and God has provided. Notice as well the trees of Lebanon. Now Lebanon, up north of Israel, the, that's where the forests grew the, in Israel proper. It's pretty scraggly stuff. I guess the biggest trees I saw were in Jericho, the sycamore trees. They're all over the place in Jericho. You know, Zacchaeus climbed up in the sycamore tree. Um, the little scrubby acacia trees wouldn't, wouldn't be much. 
But notice up in Lebanon, there's where you have the cedars, these high firs, and that is where you remember they got the lumber uh, for the temple that they built on both occasions, both when Solomon built it and later on when the second temple was being built. The Lebanese, King Hiram in the first case, uh, had his laborers cut down these big trees and float them by barge down to Joppa, which was the seaport closest to Jerusalem, and then they brought them overland uh, to Jerusalem to use in construction of the temple. So these high fir trees, notice he speaks of it that God not only has provided for us, he's provided for the birds. Now, and you can sort of see where this is going. It's, it's sort of like what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount. If God takes care of the flowers and he gives them dress and adorns them, and if he takes care of the birds, aren't you worth more than birds? Surely God will take care of you. And that's what's being described here is his taking care is the ecosystem, if you will. Notice even the high hills, verse 18, are a place for the, the wild goats. Rocks is a place for the badgers to dig their holes in. And then verse 19, he gives us a moon for seasons and the sun knoweth it's going down. Most of the time, when we think of the sun and moon today and stars, uh, we just think of these nice pretty things up there in the sky. But do you realize that for the ancient man, the sun, the moon, and the stars, that was your watch. That's your calendar. I mean, think about a world where you don't have a watch. There's no way to tell time. Well, there is a way to tell time because the sun rising and setting defines a day. The moon going through its phases, why almost all the ancient cultures, including Israel, were on a lunar calendar because the moon going through its phases defines a month. And the stars, if you get you out in your backyard and get you a couple of sticks and line up this star up there when the sun goes down, when that star comes right back around to that same place. Guess what? A year has gone by. And that's why you find these stone circles everywhere from Stonehenge to the plains of Wyoming where the Indians had these stone circles out there. They used these things to line up with the stars because that's how they could tell what time of the year it was. One of my favorite movies was Jeremiah Johnson. John back there, he, he loves it. He has it memorized, I think. But uh, John helped me here when he meets up one of his old partners. He'd been up in the high country, his old mountain man, and they're up there having this conversation. He asked him, do you know what month it is? <laughs> and he said, well, I don't know. It could be this, could be that. Well, think about a world where you've got no clock. And what are you going to use to tell? How do you know when to plant? When you feel like it? Well, the sun, moon, and stars gives you your clock. They give you your calendar, and that's why these things are so prevalent that we find today. I especially like this next section. Section In verse 20, he says, You make it dark, and that's when the wild beasts of the forest creep. Uh, he's talking about animals of prey, the carnivorous animals that go out uh, have you seen the commercial about the antelope with night vision goggles? I love it. You know, we can totally see. You know, this is embarrassing. You're supposed to be the king of the beast. This is embarrassing. You know, they're seeing this line out there. I love it. But the idea is, is that these carnivorous beasts come out at night. 
And notice, they seek their meat from God. The lion or the leopard or the tiger, whatever, when he takes down the gazelle or the wildebeest, he is taking the food that God is providing for him. That's what he says. He's getting his food from God. That God has provided a natural way of culling the herd. Because usually these critters, these animals of prey, take down the weak, the old, the stragglers. They're the ones that get eaten. The fast ones get away. It's the old joke. I don't have to outrun him. I just got to outrun you. It's the slow one that gets culled. And so there's sort of a natural culling going on that keeps the herd strong. But notice here it speaks of the fact that these wild beasts are getting their food from God and they're out there at night seeking their prey. And where is man while they are out there at night? Well, obviously this was written in a more primitive day than ours because notice in verse 23, man goes forth um, to his work and to his labor until the evening. In other words, it's sort of like God has two shifts here. He has the night shift. And guess what's happening out there in the night shift? The lions, the leopards, the tiger, they're all out there getting their stuff. Well, where's man? He's safely inside his house. He's asleep. Sun goes, comes up. The, notice in verse 22, the sun riseth, and they gather themselves together and lay them down in their dens. The critters go to sleep. Man gets up and does his work. So it's like God has ordained uh, that's why I don't think I don't think it's natural for men to work at night. Sorry, all you FedEx guys, but just unnatural. Uh, but notice in the primitive world the the wonder of all of this that when I'm out there working, the lions, these beasts of prey, are in their dens asleep, and when I'm asleep, they're out there on the prowl. Interesting. So notice again the ecology, and I mean by that the ecological system that God is designing here for the benefit of His creation. And so verse 24 sort of is a summary verse here of, Lord, O Lord, how manifold are Thy works. In other words, to be manifold means there's a whole bunch of them. They're all different kinds. First of all, the critters, the animals, the plants. It's not just one. It's all these manifold distinctions of critters and plants. Think of the landscapes that are on this planet. Just the everything from desert to mountains to oceans to beaches to delta. The variety of things that God has placed on this planet. Now, I, I thought it would be helpful to stop right here and mention that it is only a Christian that sees the hand of God in all of this. And the evolutionist who thinks all of this happened by happenstance and by chance can never see the fingerprints of God. Because to him, it's the other way around, that there's this environment that just sort of happened and then life evolved to fit certain ecological niches in the environment. But notice the way it's being described here is completely backwards to that. It is that God has shaped and formed the environment to fit the creatures that He has ordained to dwell in that environment. He is supplying what His creatures are going to need by the way He forms the earth for them. 
I, uh, it, it becomes very obvious to me, and uh, trying to, I, I'm a long way from the scientific world, was there at one time, but it's been a long time, uh, but I try to sort of keep my ear to the ground of seeing, you know, what's going on, and what I notice is that for all the talk of naturalism, um, Scientists speaking in terms that there's no need for any supernatural intervention. There's no need, you know, all this is just a natural occurrence. There is a religious bent to what what's going on. Uh, we certainly see that, don't we, in the uh, the environmental movement. And I and I certainly believe there is a Christian environmentalism. That's true. We're not to spoil what God has put here. We're not to muddy the streams, you know, unnecessarily. Uh, we're to use this world, but not abuse it. And certainly there is an abusing that can go on. But uh, there is an environmentalism that basically says that everything should be left as wilderness and man is an intruder. And uh, the themes of Mother Gaia, you're all familiar with Mother Earth. Gaia was the uh, Greek goddess who is the, the equivalent of Mother Earth, uh, it is amazing to me how close some very brilliant scientists have come to espousing that kind of thing. Let me give you an example. Some of the evolutionists today are saying that matter is self-organizing in itself. That life, just recently, scientists was quoted as saying, is that life is probably as common in the universe as compounds. In other words, just as elements combine into various substances and compounds, and they do that without anybody interfering, uh, he's saying that it appears to him that life is that much of a life, uh, a self-organizing principle in itself. What that's saying is it's like matter is alive. That matter has a mind of its own. Um, you saw Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. You know, it's like life is this force, this intelligent thing. And uh, Gaia was the old ancient Greek way of describing that. And we've got folks, brilliant people, coming very, very close to that. The strongest arguments against evolution is not biology or chemistry. It's physics. In fact, the first challenges to Darwinism came... Uh, Sir Fred Hoyle was an astronomer of all things in England, published a book in 1984 called The Intelligent Universe. Now, Fred Hoyle's not a Christian, and he... Uh, but he pointed out, he says, to the physicists, it's very obvious somebody is monkeying with the physics. That there's too many coincidences. He was talking about the, the oscillations, the harmonic oscillations necessary for the formation of carbon atoms, and you care less about this stuff. But what he's saying is, how'd that happen? We are carbon-based creatures and we live in an environment that makes it easy for carbon to form. 
And that's not normal. That's not natural. That's not what you would expect. If you know how how atomic structure works, that's the last thing you'd really expect. And yet things are just right. Just right. There's a convergence of the electromagnetic force, the strong force that holds the atom together. Those things converge to make it very easy for carbon atoms to form. And he's saying, wait a minute, how'd that happen? Who knew to make that happen? That if we don't have carbon, we don't have life. And so you, you say, well, that's just one. Yeah, that's just one of a whole list of things. I was reading today that if the force of gravity right now made you one billionth of a gram heavier than you are, now you're, you're always worried about gaining weight. But most of us don't worry about a billionth of a gram. But if the force of gravity were adjusted to where it was one billionth, made you weigh one billionth of a gram heavier than you are, we would have no stars, we would have no suns, we would have no planets in the universe. That the gravitational constant has to be set with that kind of accuracy in order for this universe to exist. For there to be any stars or planets or suns and moons and so forth. The electromagnetic force between an electron and a proton has to be within 4% of what it is or you would have no chemistry at all. We don't know how to make it stronger or less. All we know it is. It's, it's a constant. We didn't set it. And there's the electromagnetic force constant. There's the ratio of a proton to an electron that has to be, oh, a minute fraction if it's not that. Nothing is going to form in the universe. The, the gravitational constant, the speed of light, and we can go down the list, these constants that we don't set. We just know what they are. We can measure them. We can't make them more powerful or less powerful than they are. They just are that way. All we know is you monkey with them the slightest amount and you can't have a universe. You say, well, you just mean you can't have this universe. No, you can't have any universe that would be anywhere near what is necessary for life to form and live on. And that's what Fred Hall said. Somebody was monkeying with the physics. It's like walking into a factory and you got 30 dials up there on the wall, and every one of those 30 dials have to be set just right. Every one of them. Or you don't have a universe. And you just go in there and start dialing them up. What are the odds you're going to get them all right? It's astronomical. And so Fred Hoyle, he said, well, obviously there are aliens out there who... It's amazing, isn't it, what men will do to avoid the conclusion that there is a creator who dialed everything up just right. And, of course, that's what we're reading here in Psalm 104. Here's an ancient man who has no knowledge of these things whatsoever. He's just looking around and saying, hey, there's, there's water. Hey, I need water. And look at there. There's water over here. My cow needs grass. And guess what? There's grass growing over here. He's just looking around at his environment in the most primitive way and saying, look, isn't this strange how everything necessary for my life and the life of my cows and so forth is supplied by the hand of God? What Fred Hoy was doing is just taking that down to the atomic level and doing the same thing.
just so happens, Tom, <laughs> just so happens that all of those numbers got dialed up just right. That's what I keep saying is you can talk about biology and chemistry all day long and trying to fight the evolutionists. You ought to be talking about the physics because if you don't get the physics right, you have no chemistry. If you have no chemistry, you have no biology. The physics is the fundamental thing. And that just was just right. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Too hot, too cold is not going to work. It has to be just right. Okay, so that's what the psalmist is saying. Just look around at the manifold works of God. Your wisdom, you in wisdom you made them all. This is not accident. There is the evidence of design. There is order. And the whole earth is full of thy riches. Now he goes on to talk about God caring for his creation. We do know that if we plant that garden, there's a lot of organization and thought has to go into the arrangement of it. But you can't just walk off and leave it. You come back later, the weeds have taken over. Since my wife's not in here, I can tell you the story that her flower beds, and she went out one, I was on a trip somewhere, and I came back, and she had dug up all these flower beds out in the yard. And from that day, has never lifted a hoe, never touched them. Do you know where those flower beds are today? Neither do I. <laughs> the grass is taking them back over. In other words, there is not just the crafting, the design of the thing in the first place, but there's an ongoing maintenance. And that's the thing we obviously ought to think about in before we get into some of our projects. It's, it's not the upfront cost. It's those easy, easy monthly payments that get you every time. Well, God has to do the same as far as his world is concerned. There's not just the formation of it, not just the organization of it, but there is the maintenance of it. And that is what now comes into picture. He speaks here in verse 25 and 26 of the creatures that are in the sea. Uh, Notice they're both big ones and there's little ones. And in fact, there's some great big ones. He mentions Leviathan, which is usually thought to uh, be speaking of the whale. And if I'm an early guy out there in a little old boat and I see a whale come up next to me, I, I don't know what I would have uh, talked about panic-stricken to have seen a creature of that size. But notice in verse 27, here's the point. A myriad of creatures in the sea, these all wait upon thee. It doesn't matter if they're the little biddians or the great big ones. They're waiting on you that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. You, God, have to feed them. You give them that which thou givest them, they gather. Notice it's like they're taking it, like you would feed your dog out of your hand. So God is feeding the whale, he's feeding the minnows. He's feeding them out of his hands. He is supplying the food that they need. Notice verse 29, you hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die. Do you see here the utter dependency of God's creatures on their God? They desperately need him. All he has to do for them to wither away is just hide his face and withhold their breath. But, verse 30, you send your spirit. Word spirit, both in Greek and Hebrew, mean is same as breath. Okay? You send your breath, and they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. He speaks, seems to be speaking of two things here. First of all, the seasons, going through winter right now, the earth as it was declines. It's as if God hides his face, and then he sends his spirit and renews the earth in the spring. 
We see the same thing with generations of livestock and people. That one generation passes off the scene, another generation takes its place. So this, this cycle of life, we sometimes refer to it. And yet notice the psalmist's agenda is to point out the fact that this cycle of life is utterly dependent upon God. God hides His face, they're troubled, He removes their breath, they die. He gives breath, they live. They are utterly dependent upon Him. And then finally, in verses 31 through 35, we see God, both God and His people glorying in His works. I, I, I thought about this today, that just like you would put some time in, making a garden out in your backyard, and sometimes you just might want to go out there and stroll around and look at it. Got you a flower bed? You just want to go out there and enjoy the flowers. The farmer plants his crops. Has it all weeded and everything just goes out? I used to go out with my dad. We'd just drive, drive around on Sunday afternoon, drive around and look at the crops. Just enjoy the fruit of your labor, the hard work that you put in. Well, notice the same thing here is being said of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in His works. He's going to joy in what He's done. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. Now, the earth compared to God is pretty fragile. And so all he has to look on, do is look at it and it quakes, what we call an earthquake. All he has to do is touch it and the mountains start smoking, what we call a volcano. But it's like God loves to fiddle with his creation. It's his enjoyment of what he has formed. And so the psalmist then says, I will sing. I'll give praise as long as I have being. My meditation of Him will be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. If God rejoices in what He's done here, then I will do it too. And finally, we come to what I would call the Christian ecological movement or the environmental movement because the Christian wants to see a clean planet. The Christian wants to see the trash picked up taken out and burned. Except the godly man is not concerned so much about the paper on the ground as he is sinners polluting this earth, this planet. Look at this last verse. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Christ speaks in one of His parables of then shall He purge out of His kingdom all things that offend. It's going to be a clean-up day. Gathering up, taking out the trash, and burning it. A new heaven, a new earth in which dwelleth righteousness. The pollution of this planet isn't from our exhaust fumes. It's from our sin. And one day, that'll all be cleaned up. Well, all right, I'll I'll stop there. It's a it's an interesting psalm. Again, notice the variety of psalms that we've had. Just a a smorgasbord. It's like going through a buffet. It's got choice after choice after choice. If you want to pick up one of the psalms, there's a psalm for almost everything, every situation you can imagine. And here we find one that is speaking of looking out upon God's earth. His works and rejoicing in what we see. 
Okay, anybody, any comments, anything? Well, we do see an expanding universe. Uh, for a while, it was thought there might be enough mass in the universe to cause uh, things to finally come to a stop and start contracting. And you may be familiar with the uh, oscillation theory of evolution where uh, the evolutionists began to realize the odds are just staggering for evolution to have occurred in, say, if, if the universe is 13 billion years old, which is what it looks like, doesn't mean it is, but if that's what it is, the, you, to the average guy sitting out there, you say, oh, man, that gives the evolutionists the time they need for evolution to take place. No, it doesn't. It doesn't even come close, and the evolutionist knows it. And so he realizes that for evolution to take place, 13 billion years is just a drop in the bucket of the time necessary and so the odds of life evolving naturally in one 13 billion year period is minuscule, uh, unthinkable really, unthinkably small. But if you've got enough oscillations, um, you know, if you get a billion oscillations, then you've got a billion times better odds than what you had, which is one. And so the idea is, is that we just happen to live in the one oscillation the universe expands, contracts, expands, contracts, and we were in one of the bounces. We're in the bounce where life did evolve. Minuscule chances of it evolving in just one bounce, but if you got a billion or more bounces, then maybe it could happen, and we just happen to be in that one bounce. Well, today we know, now there's not enough mass in the universe. It's not slowing down. In fact, inexplicably, the universe is speeding up. The rate of expansion is getting faster, not slower. And uh, you may read about dark matter, dark energy. One of the reasons why that's postulated, dark energy in particular, is is because of that. Uh, you say, well, what what's, what could possibly be causing things to speed up? Well, it must be some sort of energy, but we can't see it, so let's call it dark energy. <laughs> it's out there. We can see the effects. We just don't know what it is. Yes, Linda? Um, measure, just measurements. How do they know it's expanding? And, and keep in mind, that, yeah, they, one guy runs out there with a tape measure and, uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of different, uh, different techniques. But in other words, and, and keep in mind, now obviously we can't run out there with a yardstick and measure it. But by every, everything we can think of to measure, it, it appears the universe is expanding and not just expand. We knew it was expanding. The redshift, the Hubble, the fellow that the Hubble telescope was named after discovered the redshift. And, and, and it's similar to when you hear a train coming towards you. You know how the pitch changes when it goes by you? It goes, that change of pitch. Well, when the train's coming at you, the sound waves are hitting your eardrums. I mean, your, the pitch is dependent on how many waves hit your eardrum in a second. And so with the train coming at you, you have more waves hitting you than when the train is past you and is going away from you. And so even though it's traveling at the same speed, the, the number of waves that are hitting you as it's coming to you is more than when it's moving from you. Well, light works the same way. Light is like a wave. And everything we look at in the universe is red-shifted, with few exceptions. There's 
half a dozen in our local galaxy group. That's a long story. But there's some local Andromeda, uh, the large and small Magellanic clouds. Those are in our what's called our local group, and they're sort of orbiting around each other. But once you get beyond our, our local group, Everything's moving away. And you say, how do you know that? Because all the spectrum of the light, we can recognize hydrogen, we can recognize helium out there, but the, the, the lines, the, acet- the, the bars are shifted to the red, which is the lower, which is indicative of things moving away from you. And the further they are, the faster they're moving away from us. So we've known that for a good while. But uh, now we know that they're not just moving away from us, they're speeding up and have no clue. (laughs) And how far it will expand until it stops, we have no clue. But in other words, the idea of the universe finally coming to a stop and contracting back on itself appears to be a no, that's not going to happen. So now the popular way to explain evolution is through the multiverse Multiverse, that is, that we live in one universe with a whole lot of other universes. It's sort of like bubbles, soap bubbles, that each bubble represents a universe. And if you're in one universe, you're absolutely ignorant of any other universe around you, you see. You're in an isolated universe, but there's a and G in bubbles. And so the odds of life evolving in any one of those bubbles is minusculely small. But if we've got enough bubbles eventually life will evolve in one of them. And guess what? We are in the one where life evolved. Uh, again, it's just fishing for ways of trying to, trying to explain how we got here without God. How did we get here without God? And it gets more and more difficult. The more we know, the more difficult it is to explain. You would think if it was simple... I mean, there was a time in the 1800s that they thought life was just a, you just put the right combination of goo together and you get life. And now we realize that no, it doesn't work that way. There is the mechanism, the simplest cell is like this robot, this factory. If you blew it up a billion times and put it in your backyard, it looked like this huge, gigantic robotic factory, autom- automated. And not only do you have the factory, then you've got the DNA, which is like the software that makes the factory know what it's supposed to do. You've got to have information. It's sort of like your computer. You don't have software. Your computer just becomes a pretty doorstop or paperweight. It's useless. And so now you've got a double problem. You can't have... Can you imagine, Robert, developing a software program for which there's no computer? Or the opposite problem, having a computer with no software. Absolutely useless. Either way. Now you've got a problem. You've got to have both the hardware and the software evolve at the same time. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't get simpler. The more we know, the more complex this thing has gotten. And so eventually you say, how complex does it have to be before you realize there's got to be something Someone, you have to, if for this kind of complexity, this kind of design, there has to be a designer. That's exactly right. Just want to stay in denial. Yeah, it's like the native in Africa has reasoned that much. 
that I didn't get here by myself. Something out there bigger than I am. And he may not know what it is, and he may pervert it with his own sin nature, and he will pervert it, but he recognizes, no, there's somebody out there, something bigger than me in this place. So I... uh we, we'll see. It's interesting. It's, it's, what's interesting to me is the, it's sort of like the gymnastics that scientists go through trying to avoid the unthinkable conclusion that there's a creator. It's like any, give me anything but that. I'll, I'll swallow anything before I'll agree to that. And Fred Hoyle says, oh no, there's got to be design. There's got to be intelligent, but it's aliens. And, of course, the question is, well, then, where'd the aliens come from? You hadn't solved your problem. You just put it off one, uh, one degree, one arm's length. Okay. Let us marvel at God's creation. And uh, rather than complain about what's falling out of the sky, see it as uh, God's provision for his creatures. It's a token of his goodness that He's still caring for us today. His goodness seen in that He makes His rain to fall, His sun to shine on both the just and the unjust.